0: Today's episode of The Wicked Library is brought to you by HorrorMade.com. From horror haikus to author and filmmaker interviews to original art and dark fiction reviews, HorrorMade.com has a terrifically fun collection of dark things that are sure to delight. Whether you're looking for a little inspiration or maybe a place to share your short stories and creepy artwork, HorrorMade.com is your delightfully dark home for horror. Also brought to you by Shadows at the Door. Shadows at the Door is an ever-growing collection of haunted stories inspired by the ghastly, the ghoulish, and the macabre. You can enjoy the pleasing terrors and similar content at shadowsatthedoor.com.
1: The Wicked Library contains adult themes, adult situations, adult language, and graphic depictions of terror, bloodshed, the occasional possession, and your future trips to your psychiatrist, so he or she can assure you it's only a story. This podcast is intended for mature audiences only. You've been warned, kiddies. (laughs) Hello, kiddies. Have a seat and relax. I'm your
0: librarian. There's nothing to be afraid of. Yet. Hold on to yourselves, boils and rules. This is going to be a dark
1: ride. We'll leave the lights on for now. No talking. It's story time. At the Wicked Library. <laughs>
0: Properly support the head and neck, an effective pillow maintains a height of approximately five inches. This is the first thought to go through Larry's alcohol scorched mind on Saturday morning, and he has no idea where the thought came from. It's true, of course, and his pillow is anything but effective, proper, or supportive. In fact, right now, his pillow is a running shoe. He sits up and stares at his shoe rubs his aching neck. Slowly, he realizes someone is watching him. It's his nine-year-old son, Patrick, whose attention is torn between what's on TV, Spider-Man beating up a giant lizard, and what's on the family room floor, Larry. Hey, buddy, Larry says. Daddy was just camping out on the floor, practicing for... uh... Camping. Are we going camping? Um, eventually. What about snakes? I'm afraid of snakes. There are only about 8,000 venomous snake bites in this entire country, buddy. And no more than a dozen fatalities annually. That's .0025 of a percent of the population. The stats and calculations tumble over Larry's tongue. And again, he has no idea where the facts come from. Patrick cocks his head toward his father, though his gaze is fixated on the television. It doesn't help, Dad. Using all of his available stamina and coordination, Larry walks into the kitchen, sits down at the breakfast table, and closes his eyes. The darkness there, normally comforting, is tainted by the unpleasant sensation that starved maggots are gnawing at the backs of his eyelids. Larry opens his eyes, his groggy vision settling on the already open morning paper. Larry's wife Gail stands over the stove, tending to a pan of scrambled eggs, not looking at him. Time did you get home last night? Larry closes his eyes, preferring, at least for the moment, to face the hungry maggots. Why ask when you know already? Because I want to see if you're too drunk to know. Fine. It was three o'clock. She stares at him blankly. Four o'clock. More staring. Half past four? Gail turns back to the stove, stirs the eggs. How much did you have to drink? More than enough. What if you'd gotten into an accident? What if you'd killed yourself or someone else? Gail audibly grits her teeth, and he cringes. Not because he has a problem with teeth gritting, but because Gail looks like her mother when she grits. You shouldn't put milk in the eggs, Larry says. It makes them burn. Use a bit of water instead. She stares at him while the eggs behind her smolder. What? You're the cook now? Sorry, I guess I must have read that somewhere. But did he? No. He has no idea where he picked up this random bit of cooking knowledge. He turns the page of the newspaper, hoping for an interesting article to change the subject. Instead, he finds a report about the renovation of a local building, which contains a fact, that the building was built in 1934, that he somehow... Knows to be untrue. What the hell? On the back page, he finds the crossword. Gale had entered three of the answers before giving up. He picks up the pen and stares at the blank little squares on the page. A five-letter word for trout basket. Creel. A six-letter expression of annoyance. Tsk, tsk. A seven-letter word that makes animals' eyes shine in the dark. Tapetum, he says. What? Gail says, dumping the eggs into the basket. "Tapetum. It's what makes animals' eyes glow. Uh-huh. A five-letter word for a dispatch boat. A ten-letter breed of dog. An eleven-letter Latin illogical conclusion. Aviso. Rottweiler. Non-sequitur. On and on it goes until Larry finishes the entire puzzle. He moves on to yesterday's crossword, filling in the answers while Gail whips up a new batch of eggs. Whoa, check out the brain on Dad, Patrick says, standing behind Larry. Not bad, huh, kiddo? Patrick sits next to Larry, and Gail places a fresh plate of eggs in front of their son. She leans over Larry, mouthing the answers to the crossword. "'How did you know all of this?' she says. "'Larry shrugs. "'I just did.' "'Patrick puts down his fork. "'Mom, these are the best eggs ever.' "'Thanks,' she says, sighing. "'I used water instead of milk.' "'Later that morning, Gail stands over her husband.' He's sprawled on the couch, drinking a concoction that smells like rotten juice. Patrick sits in the recliner. Tension has rooted into her lower back, like all those damn vines with the spade-shaped leaves that plague her garden. She clears her throat. We'll need to drive separately to Mom's. I'm bringing over that table from the garage. That's today, isn't it? He rubs the bridge of his nose. I figured Patrick and I'd go over early to spend some time with her, so you can wait until closer to dinner. Can I go later with Dad, Patrick says. No, that's okay, Larry says. I'll just leave at the same time. Her back tightens. Larry must know that he'll have a bad time at Mom's. But he goes anyway, out of some retarded sense of duty to Gail. Yet he'll spend the whole afternoon fidgeting and pouting and sighing like a baby. She wrinkles her nose. What are you drinking? He holds up the glass. Pickle juice, orange juice, Gatorade, tomato juice, hot sauce, coffee. She asks the only reasonable question. Why? To cure my... His eyes flick to Patrick, now flipping through the channels. My cold. I've got a whopper of a headache. Patrick looks over. I'm guessing all that drinking didn't help your cold, Dad. Great. Gail picks up the drink and snips. It smells like something that would leak out of a casket. And where did you get the idea for this unholy concoction? It just occurred to me. He sits up quickly and points at the TV. Buddy, leave it here for a second. Fill in the blank? Patrick says. Just for a minute. Okay, contestants, says the well-manicured host on the TV screen. Welcome back to Fill in the Blank. It's time for final blanks. Whoever gets the most correct answers wins the round. Are you ready? The contestants nod. Blank predicted that Jesus was going to be born in Bethlehem. Micah, Larry says before any of the contestants. Correct, the host says. Blank contains all five vowels in reverse alphabetical order. Subcontinental and unoriental, Larry says. A second later, a female contestant says, Subcontinental. Correct. We also would have accepted unoriental. Patrick looks up at his dad, eyes and mouth wide open. Larry glances down at his son and smiles nervously. Gail just shakes her head. Something's up. Larry isn't a stupid man. He's remarkably clever, in fact. But he's never been good with facts. She can easily trounce him in trivial pursuit or scrabble. The host smiles. In the nation of Blank, the Indus River flows into the ocean. Pakistan, Larry turns to Gail. How the hell did I know that? I couldn't even tell you where Pakistan is on a map. Larry closes his eyes. Oh, wait. Yeah, I guess I can. Gail shakes her head. She can't let this distract her from the topic at hand. Not when she still has an ace in the hole. Instead of going to mom's early, she says, you could always finish painting the garage. Larry shakes his head. It's going to rain. If you don't want to do it, just say so. Have you been outside today? There isn't a cloud in the sky. It's going to rain. I'm sure of it. The paper says it'd be clear all weekend. The paper's wrong. Believe me, I read the whole thing, and I spotted several other bits of misinformation. Yeah, I bet you did. Later, Larry migrates to the recliner and watches a historical documentary about the Civil War. A famous actor, maybe Morgan Freeman, was going on about how the war was the bloodiest in American history. Larry shakes his head. Well, I got that part all wrong. We're leaving, Gail says. I'll see you over there. Do you need help with the table? Larry spills himself out of the recliner. That's okay, Gail says, though her tone indicates clearly it is not. She slams the side door just loud enough to rattle the windows. Larry grunts. God damn it. It. He stops to the bedroom and jerks himself out of his pajamas. As he slides into his jeans, he marvels at the fact that one bale of cotton can produce a whopping 215 pairs of jeans. The official birthday of blue jeans is May 20th. Also, the date in 1570 that cartographer Abraham Artilius created the first modern-day atlas. The dye used most commonly for jeans is phallocyanine, an intensely colored macrocyclic compound with low solubility in virtually all solvents. As potential cancer-fighting properties of sphalocyanine cells flitter across Larry's consciousness, he clenches his teeth and growls, takes a deep breath. On his way out the door, he actually finds his car keys right where he expects them to be, an event that hasn't happened in years. His Camry zips along the side streets of their neighborhood. Gail will take the highway, but the backroads will be faster. Veering the car on the County Road 19, he pulls out his cell phone and dials his friend, Todd Leon. Todd answers, his voice raw. Why, man? Why so early? Todd Did you know that your Italian surname is derived from the Latin Leonis, a nickname for a fierce or brave warrior? Did you know that you share said surname with a Canadian businessman and criminal, an Italian long-distance runner, a food critic, a Canadian model and film director? Did you know all that, Todd? Because I sure as hell do. What the hell happened last night? I can't remember anything after the nacho dip. Just tell me what we did last night. I don't know. got pretty crazy. We mixed a bunch of crazy new drinks with shit Kevin found in his freezer. We played online video games with strangers. We had a Dorito eating contest sometime after midnight. Oh, and we microwaved Scott's broken iPhone. That shit was hilarious.
1: Uh Uh-huh.
0: Anything else? about covers it. Larry sighs. (sighs) Thanks, Todd. I'll catch you later. Hey, don't forget that the Beverly Hills 90210 marathon starts at 5 o'clock. Thanks. After a pause, Todd almost whispers. Hey, how did you know that I watched 90210? Larry clicks off. His car speeds past stretches of leafy trees and acres of cornfields. The long stalks blur together as Larry picks up speed. Each ear of corn has about 795 kernels in 16 rows. Wonderful to know. Usually not one for excessive speed. Today, Larry knows exactly how fast he can accelerate into a turn without skidding off the road. As he zips around a bend at a swift 72 miles an hour... His head flashes with approximations of entry, apex, exit, weight, velocity, friction, breaking point, and wind resistance. Fat globs of rain strike the windshield, and he alters all his equations. When Gail pulls their squat CRV into her mother's rain-spattered driveway, her mouth falls open and morphs into a smile. Larry's Camry already sits next to the garage. Larry's still behind the wheel. She wonders how long he's waited there and why. Because he wants to see her face when she sees that he beat her there? Or because he hates being alone with his mother-in-law? Or because he wants to gloat about the rain? She assumes all of the above. Larry steps out of the car carrying an umbrella in one hand and waving with the other. Dad, how did you get here so fast? Patrick asks. I took the back roads, he says. You? Gail steps into the misty rain and waves away his offer of an umbrella. You get lost going through the drive through You never take the back roads. Well, today I did. I knew the way, and I knew it'd be faster. Larry pauses. And I wanted to help you with the table. She speaks through a grin that she can't hold back. Thanks. Mom's house, where Gail grew up, is the largest home in one of the older suburbs around town. A neighborhood built when it first became fashionable for the wealthy to live outside of the downtown area, it also boasts the most immaculate garden on the street. Hi, Mom. Gail yells as she and Larry maneuver the table into the house. Patrick holds open the front door. Careful with that, her mom, Samia Ballinger, snaps. Her blonde hair is pulled up into a tidy bun. Heavy makeup covers her beautiful face like acrylic paint. You didn't use a blanket to move it? I hope it's not scuffed. With that, mom turns on her heel and returns to the kitchen. Larry and Gail exchange glances. Gail is struck by a gleam in his eye, something she hasn't seen since ever. Smells good, Mom, Larry says, following her into the kitchen. Gail notices her mother cringe at the sound of Larry using the word Mom at her. She stands over the stove and stirs a pot of vegetable soup. Thank you, Lawrence, she says. The kitchen is spotless. Even the presumably dirty coffee cup in the sink gleams. Gail sits down at the kitchen table. The garden looks great. It'll win neighborhood pride awards. Yet again. Patrick, Samia says, why don't you go out into the garden and get some carrots for the salad? Sure, Grandma. Gail grabs a piece of celery from the fridge and fills a glass of water from the tap. She pulls the ice tray out of the freezer and slams it hard on the counter. A few blocks of ice leap out of the tray, as if startled. She drops them into her glass. Samia watches as Gail munches on the celery. Are you still trying to lose weight, Gail? I'd like to lose a few more pounds. You know, that's an old wives' tale, Samia says, refilling the ice tray and sliding it back into the freezer. Drinking ice water doesn't really burn calories. Actually, that's not true. Larry holds up the water. If you drink a 16-ounce glass of ice water, your system has to raise the temperature of the water from 0 to 37 degrees. To do that, you probably burn about 17 calories. Now, that may not sound like much, but multiply that by the eight glasses of water that Gil likely drinks per day, and it could be as much as 136 calories. That's about what she'd burn walking for a half an hour a day. It's just shy of 1,000 calories a week. Thank you, Lawrence. Your insight is appreciated. Samia looks back at Gail. That was the great thing about your father. He knew when to keep his mouth shut. Ben was a great guy, Larry says. But he spent his whole life terrified of you. No matter what he did, it was never good enough. Right up until he had his stroke, he was trying to do the impossible to make you happy. And Gail has fallen into the same trap. She will always be too fat or too thin. Patrick will never be smart enough or well-mannered enough, and I'm never going to measure up to the husband that you sent to the grave. A sickly sensation snuggles up against Gail's spine. Her jaw clenches. She's mortified, though every word Larry says is true. Still at the fridge, her mother grits her teeth, which is even more mortifying because Gail knows she does the exact same thing. Gail finishes her water and stomps out of the kitchen on shaky legs. These carrots are huge, Patrick says, walking into the kitchen with an armful of carrots, the first vegetable to be canned commercially. Native to Afghanistan, this biennial plant features a flowering stem whose flowers produce a maricarp, a type of dry fruit. Larry smiles at his son, who naturally remains oblivious to the avalanche of silence that threatens to smother Larry and Samia. He takes Patrick's arrival as a cue to leave. Pat, help your grandma with the carrots. Walking briskly out of the kitchen, he finds Gail in the upstairs bathroom. He doesn't bother trying the knob. He knows it's locked. Instead, he knocks three times on the door. Can I come in, babe? The doorknob clicks. He enters. Gail stands at the sink, gazing at her reflection in the spotless mirror. I'm sorry, he says. I shouldn't have said that. It was all true. Well, that doesn't mean it needed said. I'm I'm sorry. I've been Mr. Know-it-all all all day. And it kind of went to my head. I've been kind of arrogant. She smirks. Kind of. He steps behind her. Wraps his arms around her waist and hugs her tight. They stare at themselves in the mirror. They've been married for over a dozen years. They've eaten countless meals together. 7,817, actually. Rode hundreds of thousands of miles, watched weeks' worth of television, and shared thousands of kisses. All together. The weight of these statistics blurs his vision. He squeezes his eyes shut and refocuses on her reflection. He sees her. The truth of her. Not the image of her that's been carved and finished inside his head. "'You're beautiful,' he says. "'Thank you. "'I'm sorry about staying out so late. "'You can stay out all night and I wouldn't care. "'I just don't want you driving in that condition.' Think about Patrick. It was stupid. I'm I'm sorry. So, were there any hot girls at the bar last night? She rocks gently back and forth, so her backside rubs against his crotch. None as hot as you. Somehow, this is both true and not true. He kisses her lightly on the back of the neck. She cocks her head so that he can kiss her behind the ear her favorite spot he squeezes her waist and continues kissing she cranes her neck to kiss his lips after 3 minutes and 30 seconds of kissing in which they each burn 91 calories use all 34 facial muscles and swap 57 million colonies of bacteria Larry drops his hand into the waistband of her skirt Larry this isn't she gasps Don't, she moans. Don't. Larry's never been very good with his hands. Today is different. So different. She lifts her skirt. Don't stop kissing my neck. Gail slips into the edges of Dreamscape, a rain spotted canvas of undulating bushes and quivering flowers but the tremors inside her body snap her back to consciousness. She wakes with a wee gasp. You were snoring, Larry says, now sprawled out on the bathroom mat with Gail's upper body draped across his chest. Damn it. We didn't use any protection. Larry pats her back. Those hands. Oh. My. God. Those hands. You ovulated nine days ago, hon. No worries. Gail does some math in her head and smiles. What's gotten into you today? How are you suddenly so different? I don't know. I just know all these things that I didn't know before. Like how to find Pakistan. Or your G-spot. I think... I think I know everything. I mean, not all at once, but... All day long, every piece of information I need, every question I have, it all just comes to me. Whatever. Gail bites his hairy chest. He tastes like salt and coffee. Larry laughs. I'm not kidding. Try me. Ask me anything. Okay. What is the name of Jupiter's largest moon? Ganymede. But you wouldn't have known if that was right or wrong. She elbows him, sits up, and grabs one of her mother's deodorants from under the sink. Her mother has three of everything in stock under there. Toothpaste, deodorant, facial cleanser, and so on. Gail, no. Larry holds up a hand. I don't want you smelling like your mother. She shakes her head. Okay, smarty pants. Tell me the ingredients in this. Active or inactive? Inactive. Inactive. Cyclopentosiloxine. Sterile alcohol. cyclohexasiloxane, PPG-14 butyl ether. Fennel. Okay, enough. Her eyes widen. What if something's wrong with Larry's brain? Like a tumor. How the hell did you do that? Larry shrugs. It just came to me. No, I mean, how the hell did you know how to... Pronounced cyclo she squints closer at the list of ingredients cyclopenta cyclopentasiloxine larry finishes it's an odorless silicone fluid also known as cyclic pentamer melts at negative 44 degrees celsius boils at 90 degrees he grabs the deodorant runs his finger down the small print i know the same information for all of these plus a couple of ingredients that conveniently weren't listed here You're starting to creep me out. Gail pulls her panties on. We should go back out there. God knows what my mom must think. That we had hot, wild sex in her bathroom? Exactly. She smacks Larry's thigh. Let's go. They rise and wiggle into their respective clothing. Gail considers the day's events and watches her husband put on his shoes. She rests her hand on his shoulder. Okay, here's a question. What's the meaning of life? He opens his mouth as if to speak, but closes it again. He stares upward, as if the answer hides beneath his eyelids or at the fringe of his frontal lobe. An organismic state identified with growth, reproduction, metabolism, and reaction to stimuli? Larry shakes his head. No, that's not what you mean, is it? I... I don't know. Ha, Gail says. Guess you don't know everything after all. After an awkward but delicious dinner, Larry walks his family to the CRV and buckles Patrick securely. Gail kisses him on the back of the neck. Her lips as light as thin layers of hardened protein called chitin covered with thousands of miniature scales and hairs called city. In other words, as light as butterfly wings. "'Hey,' she smacks his butt, "'take those back roads and show me how you got here so fast, okay?' Okay. He climbs into his Camry and backs out of the driveway. Gail's question tickles his brain What's the meaning of life? Butterfly wings. To him. An atlas. Melting point. Snake venom. Water and egg. Subcontinental. Ice melting in a belly. Dried fruit. He shakes his head. It's all connected somehow. Several miles later, His Camry speeds down Country Road 19. Stalks of corn flicker past, now wet with rain and glistening like jewels in the bright sun. If I know everything, he says aloud, yet I don't know the meaning of life, then it follows that life has no meaning. Larry pauses, taking in the full weight of this insight. Bummer. He checks the rearview mirror to make sure Gail still follows behind. She does. His eyes flick back to the road. Three quarters of a mile ahead, a red pickup truck comes from the opposite direction. All last night and into this morning, the driver of the truck played an online role-playing game slaying hundreds of ogres and orcs. Larry knows this. A half-mile... The man's nodding off, snug in a ray of sunshine. Larry knows this. A quarter mile on its present course, the truck will drift over the yellow lane and run into Gail's CRV. It's all physics, probability, and geometry a seamless calculation of velocity, momentum, impact, weight, and measure. The truck will kill his family. Larry knows this. 100 yards he beeps his horn the old and rusted ford its gnarled grill the final resting place for hundreds of bugs keeps on coming its driver's side tires inch toward the worn yellow line the driver's head nods forward larry cuts hard to the left his camry hits the truck almost dead on The impact sends his car tumbling across the road and through a buckshot-riddled speed limit sign. His airbag explodes outward. Dust fills the air, cornstarch used to lubricate the airbag during deployment. The rusty metal of the sign tears through the car. It punctures the airbag and slices into Larry's gut. The car finally comes to a rest sideways in a ditch on the opposite side of the road. Larry hangs downward by his seatbelt, which in this case means he's dangling toward the passenger side of the car. He watches his small intestine, 20 feet long, spill out of his body and onto the passenger's seat and door. Duodenum, jejunum, ileum, epithelial tissue, mucosa, placei circularis. It takes about eight hours for food to pass through the stomach. And small intestine. By coincidence, Larry is only beginning to understand and that's about how long he's been awake today. He tries calling for Gail, and that one syllable sprays chunky blood into the dusty air. Stay here, she tells Patrick. Close your eyes. She slams the door before her son can respond and runs toward Larry's Camry, now lying sideways in the ditch. The driver of the truck lies in the road directly in her path, at the end of a trail of blood and gore. His arm looks like it has an extra elbow. Shredded skin covers his arms and face. He screams at her for help, his jaw hanging crooked like a door hinge off its hinges. Her shadow falls over him. She pulls out her phone. No signal. She opens her wallet, though she's not sure why. I'm... I'm sorry. She drops her driver's license next to the man. I have to go. Even from several steps away, she hears Larry's ragged breathing, like someone sucking air through a damp sponge. When she reaches the ditch, she vomits bits of soup and salad into the wet grass. She wipes bits of carrot from her mouth and holds on to the Camry. The ditch is deep enough that she's able to bend over the edge of the car and reach into Larry's broken driver's side window. Her husband stares up at her. Her heart squirms in her belly. Oh, God. So much blood. He reaches for her. Larry? She grabs his bloody hand. I'm here. I'm right here. He stares at her with remarkably focused eyes. Patrick. He's okay. She squeezes his hand. What happened, Larry? Was there an animal in the road? Did a tire blow? Did you lose control? The answer is He closes his eyes and smiles. His grip tightens. He coughs and takes his last breath. It's all of the above. Larry's hand goes limp, but she keeps squeezing. While dust and blood cover her husband's face, back in the road, the other man finally stops screaming. She needs to remember to get her license back. She needs to go to Patrick. She needs to tell him his father's last words. She's scared to death. She might forget. Stay tuned for a short Q&A with the author in just a moment. Today's episode featured a story by Rob E. Boley, all of the above. If you'd like more information on Rob and his work, please visit his website at robboley.com and follow him on Twitter at Rob Boley. Artwork for today's show was created by Jeanette Andromeda. If you'd like more information on Jeanette and her work, please visit horrormade.com and follow her on Twitter at Horror underscore made. Big thanks to TD Trask for his great story last week. A job's a job. Man, you guys love that one. Uh, big downloads on that episode. I guess you could always say the devil made you do it, right? Don't forget to visit our great sponsors. Shadows at the Door, Rickert and Beagle Books, Horror Made, Sanitarium Magazine, Cathedral Sound, Stigmata Studios, and We Talk of Dreams. And the last one... We Talk of Dreams is actually the company run by our good friend Nico Vitaze, who you've heard work from over on The Lift. If you listen to that show or the other show that we put together, Nico is actually going to be taking over as the music director for the Wicked Library. I'm real excited about that because uh, it's a lot of work to put together all the music and do the narration and do all the other stuff that goes along with bringing you the great episodes of the Wicked Library. So it's exciting for me to hand that over to a true professional and let him do his own interpretation and up the creepy for you. So within the next few episodes, you'll start to hear Nico's work behind the narration. Please share the terror, share the show and help us grow. The best support you can give us is to rate us in iTunes iTunes is still the big industry standard. So if you get the iTunes application or if you get the iTunes program on your computer, head on over there and give us a written review. Also throw a couple of stars at us. Not ninja stars, just stars. Ratings are free and they mean a lot to us. If you listen in Stitcher, hey, you can give us a rating in Stitcher too. Follow us on Twitter at Wicked Library. Find us on Facebook and subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, google we're everywhere and by the way folks don't forget to check out society-13.com that is our podcast network that we are a member of executive producer nelson w piles of this show is one of the founders of that network and there's a whole bunch of great stuff over there there's paranormal stuff you got history goes bump our good friend dr john towers with his great show red horse radio of course the ninth story podcast the lift with our friend victoria bigglesworth hayes I could sit here probably for another five minutes and name shows. There's a ton of stuff over there. Go check it out. Don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. I know we have not had a newsletter in a little while here, but we are hard at work at getting one out to you before the end of this month. And going forward after that, you'll see a newsletter once a month. You're going to get some bonus content and more. You can sign up for that at wickedlibrary.com. Please support the show. You can pick up a T-shirt over there, too. We have some cool Wicked Library T-shirts. And... Now, sometime with Rob E. Boley. So today my guest is Rob E. Boley, and uh, we just had a fantastic read-through of your story, All of the Above. Uh, It was a great story, a lot of fun to read, and uh, I think uh, surprising in in the way that it ends. It was, uh, for me at least, it's one of the reasons I picked it is I wasn't really expecting the way that it ended up, but it made sense when you go back to the beginning of the story, which is something that I like because there's a lot of times people throw that twist in there just to throw a twist in. Um, But it's always a payoff when the twist is unexpected, but makes sense whenever you go back and read through the story a second time. Sure. So tell
1: me what was the most fun for you about writing that story? Oh, I mean, well, you you mentioned the ending and and like, weirdly, that's, that's one of the one of the few stories I think I've written that actually like I started with the ending. Like I, I wanted this moment. I it just popped in my head like this moment of you know you're driving down the, the road, you have your loved ones in the car behind you, and you see this car coming, and somehow you know with perfect certainty that 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 car is going to is going to you know kill the people that you love. And then what do you do in that moment? Um, so I kind of started from started with this very dark premise. And I was like, "Well, how would this person know that?" So then I kind of worked backwards and and uh, and kind of figured out how that would happen. So the the fun of this story was was kind of that that those opening that opening scene where you know you've got the main character um, realizing realizing that suddenly they know everything and just and just thinking about what that would be like and and, and you know the um, that was that was a lot of fun and just and just writing those scenes and um, I certainly don't uh, don't. Uh, proclaimed to know everything. So it's it's a big it was a stretch for me to kind of try to write from that perspective. Yeah, and it was kind of fun to like wrap my head around what that would be like.
0: Yeah, that's that was a lot of fun. So what attracts you to to writing horror stories? I mean, that's primarily what you write, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, I you know, I'll I'll dabble every once in a while in, in like some sci-fi or fantasy or straight up literary fiction, but but there there does always seem to be sort of a darkness that that lurks in there. Um <laughs> You know, I grew up. My my family, uh, like me and my dad, my sister, my uncle. A lot of us we 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 loved watching horror movies. Um, So I've I've got a lot of fond memories just of of the horror genre and film and TV. Um, My dad uh, read a lot of Stephen King books and still has like a complete collection of all his books. And so you know, horror just it kind of I guess it kind of runs in the blood. And um, but for me, for my writing, I think it it comes from kind of a place of. uh, like a place of anxiety. Like I can tend to be kind of an anxious person. Um, so when I'm working on a story, I, I, I kind of funnel that, that anxiety to, toward my characters. So instead of, instead of dwelling on, you know, bad things that could happen to me, I uh, I get to think about bad things that could happen to my characters. And that, and that usually takes me into a, to a horror direction.
0: It's, it's a great way to kind of work through those things too. I think, I mean, oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's uh, one of the, the first things that I started to realize when I started to get serious about you know, writing a lot of stuff, most of which doesn't get shared with anyone, of course, but um, I think that's for for all of us. Most of the stuff you write just to make sure it gets finished, but the, just the cathartic quality of, of going through that situation, you kind of get to live through that situation with your character and, and hopefully come
1: away from it a little wiser, you know? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I think there is definitely um, something kind of, I don't want to say therapeutic because I don't, I don't think you should write as a form of self help, but I think I think that I'm I'm definitely a happier person when I write because you know going uh, getting into that headspace and um, and going through like you said experiencing things with my characters and through my characters it's 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 a it's actually a very healthy experience uh, I I love it excellent so what are some of
0: your uh, your favorite routines or, or rituals when you sit down to write what helps you get into that headspace and and get into the world with your characters.
1: Um, well, I mean, I, I write, I write every morning, um, when I'm writing and not editing, I I write a thousand words. Um, pretty much I, I get up, I, uh, I boil some water for my coffee while the coffee's, uh, doing its thing and percolating. I, I do a little bit of Tai Chi and then I, I pour my first cup and I sit down and I, I read a poem, um, like I, I subscribe to the writer's almanac, um, uh, they, they send out a they send you a poem every morning and it's always waiting there in my inbox and I don't know reading reading a nice little bit of poetry is a good way to kind of get into a good literary headspace yeah and I just sit down and I write I'll I'll read the last few things I I wrote the previous day to kind of get back into the scene um, and then I just jump into it and it's it's kind of the same thing every morning you know cup of coffee some tai chi poem write and what are some of the
0: the things that inspire you aside from poetry I mean is is there certain are there certain genres that you look to, or that you enjoy, that you find help you um, create that dark place for yourself whenever you need to write something a little dark?
1: I, don't, I mean, I don't, I don't really. I mean, I just read what I enjoy. You know, I don't. I don't like seek out. You know, I, I need. I need a little more darkness, or I need a little more comedy. I just. I just. You know, whatever I'm in the mood for. I lately the past past couple years since I've been. Uh, meeting more horror authors and attending a lot of, uh, a lot of events. Uh, uh, you know, you meet writers, you want, you want to read their stuff. So I feel like a lot of the stuff I've been reading in the past couple years, uh, it's, it's from people that I've met and people that I've enjoyed spending time with. Um, but I mean, I think it comes from everywhere. It comes from, you know, whatever I happen to be watching on Netflix or, um, just random conversations with people. I, you know, I don't know how many times I've kind of been, Stuck in a place in a story, and I'll just be hanging out with somebody, and they'll they'll maybe mention something they they uh, heard in a TED talk or an article that they read online or something. And I'm like, oh, you know, that's a, and it'll, it'll just be like the perfect little little tidbit that that kind of weaves its way into a story. So I think it, I think it comes from everywhere, and I think the secret is just being open to it. You know, kind of always, you know, if you write an hour a day, you're you're still the other twenty three hours of the day, you're kind of. You're searching, you know right. what I mean? Like you're just, right. you just, you just got to stay open to the things that come to you and it can come from all directions. And, um, and usually like it's, it's, it can be some pretty unexpected directions, you know? Definitely.
0: So a lot of writers talk about, and I think we've all experienced it, the situation where you're sitting down, you're going through your routine, you're writing, and it's just not working for you. That particular scene, that particular day, what do you usually do in that situation? Do you write through it? Do you pause and do other things or?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, I don't, um, like the whole concept of writer's block, I think is just bullshit. Like <laughs> I, <laughs> I agree just, with you. I think, you know, you, you never hear about painter's block. You don't hear about sculptor's block. You know, you just, it's like any other craft or any other, it's a job, you know, you just, you do it. You, you, you know, if your job is to write a thousand words a day, you write a thousand words a day. You don't just, you know, you can't just say, you know, like, Oh, well this isn't, this isn't working. Now, having said that, like, I do think um, there are some days where I'll definitely feel like, like I can tell something's not working. Uh-huh. Um, I'll still write through it cause I want to, I want to hit my words. Um, but usually like the thing that works for me is if, if I feel like something's not working, I'll, uh, I have to do something mindless. Like I have to go, um, like I have to go for a long walk or like my commute to work, you know, like this, um, when you, if you drive the same, the same route every day, you know, you, you get a little, it becomes a little mindless. Mm-hmm. You know. Like you don't really need to pay a hundred percent attention to what you're doing. Right. Um, so it's, it's in those moments that, that I, when kind of when the, when the mind is kind of half turned off, that that's when, that's when it'll like, I'll, I'll get around that corner and I'll figure out like, okay, here's, here's what needs to happen in this scene. Um, I, that it, to me is a lot more effective than just forcing it. You know what I mean? I, you still got to get the words, but sometimes you do need to walk away for a few minutes and, and, um, and just and give you and give yourself a minute to to figure it out. Great answer.
0: What's your uh what's your favorite thing that you've read in the last year? Favorite thing I've read in the last
1: year. Let's take a second on that one. <laughs> it's usually a hard question. Yeah, cuz I, I mean I read about a book a week. Um the let's see uh, there there's a writer that I met at the Stanley Hotel Writers Retreat, uh Safira Giron and she wrote uh want to get the name the name right. Uh what was it? Experiments in Terror, I think, is what it's called. It's it's basically two novellas in in one book, um, and they have a lot. The two stories are are very different, but they have a lot in common. And it's just it's really tight writing. Like it's it's fun writing, but it's also um, like she she's really good because she's she's got an amazing balance of like very very visceral gritty description. But it's also but it's also writing at a very high level, and and you can tell that you're you're dealing with someone that that puts a lot of thought into what they do. So it it was a uh, it was uh, it was a really fun read, and it was it was awesome because it's one of those cool times where you meet someone, you get to hang out with them for a few days, and then you read their stuff, and you're like, oh, thank God, she's an amazing writer, you know? <laughs> right? <laughs> but yeah, so that that was that was an enjoyable read for sure
0: excellent yeah there's i think i agree there's nothing worse than you know really connecting and bonding with someone another writer and mm-hmm. and and reading their stuff and going oh my god this is terrible how, how what do i do what do <laughs> <Yeah>. i do <laughs> that to me is is uh that's horror right there yeah <laughs> that
1: is the very definition of horror that's right, right.
0: So, what advice do you have? I mean, you've obviously been doing this for for a while, and uh, you know you, you you've gotten to this point where it seems that your writing is very tight. You have your your own voice. You know what you're doing. What advice do you have for aspiring writers, or maybe writers that are still coming up in their genre and still working to find their voice?
1: Yeah, I think I think it's. Uh you know, the thing I always tell people is one, you know, you have to have some tangible goal every day, like, you know, be it a thousand words, 500 words, uh, 30 minutes, you know, what, whatever. Um, I like to measure it in words, but you know, whatever works for, for the person. Um, so like you have to, I think, and I do think you have to write every day. Like I know not all, not all writers do, but I think making it a daily ritual is, is super important. Um, so you write every day. I think you got to read every day and read, read as, as, as diverse as you can, um, that, so you read, you write and, and just getting out and meeting other writers. Like, I think that's super important. Like if you, if you want to, yeah, I guess it depends what your goals are. If you, if your goals are to be a published author and you know, uh, then I, I think you got to meet other writers. Cause you know, I think, you know, we write, you write in, sol- in solitude, but you, you publish in solidarity, you know, like that's right, making those right. connections, interacting with people, figuring out how they do things um, that's, that's how you, that's how you really get your stuff out there. Um, and, you know, as for finding your own voice, I mean, I think, I think that's just something that happens as you write and, and it changes too. I mean, like I, 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 you know, I'll go back and read stuff that I wrote, I wrote a few years ago and and it's, you know, there's definitely a change, you know, you, you, you evolve as, you know, just as you're constantly, hopefully evolving as a person, you're evolving as a writer, but, you know, you'll, You'll definitely, you know, there's, there's, there'll definitely be like some flavors that that are always going to be there. You know, my, my stuff tends to have, you know, it'll it'll have some sharp edges of, of darkness, but then there's also, I, I like to infuse a lot of humor as well. So, that, that's something that's, that's been a constant and, and, you know, you'll, it's just something you'll figure out. You'll find that voice. I don't know that it's something anybody necessarily, you know, it'll come when it comes, you you know? Um, and then hopefully it it continues to change. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: So, what are some of the things that you're working on now? Some of the things you have coming up that uh, fans can look out for.
1: Um, on J- the sixth book in my Scary Tales series will be out um, in ebook format probably in the next few weeks. Um, we're just waiting on the cover art um, from my publisher, um, so that's coming out. I've got let's see. I'm going to have a story uh, in this anthology called the the Frankenstein Experiment this is a really cool project. So I went to the, um, to the Stanley hotel writers retreat back in October. Um, and this, this is at the Stanley hotel in uh, Estes park, Colorado. This is a hotel where, um, where Stephen King stayed, um, that inspired him to write the shining. So super creepy space. Um, and you know, there were, I don't know. I can't remember how many, uh, horror writers were, were part of this retreat, but, um, this really cool, um, couple was there and they, um, they're basic. They they have a publishing company, and they're um they're doing they're starting this series called the Frankenstein Experiment, where you know similar to how Mary Shelley wrote Frankenstein, where it's um where it's uh, you know a group of horror writers that are that are just kind of conjuring up scary ideas. Uh, they're they're sort of recreating that premise at a different like creepy locations and, and the first the first one in the series is, is going to be from the stanley hotel writers retreat so anyone that participated in the in the retreat was was eligible to uh, to submit to this anthology i think a total of uh 13 authors were selected um i was fortunate enough to be one of them and um it's i mean there, there's going to be a lot of great talent in this book it's going to be it's going to be a really really interesting project and I'm i'm super excited to see that come out. Um, I've also, um, I've been palling around online with, uh, with Megan Hart, who's a super amazing writer. And, uh, she and I, we've gathered together a few, uh, fellow horror writers. We're going to do, uh, uh, a, like a Ouija board anthology, an anthology of stories inspired by Ouija boards. Um, yeah. so we'll have that coming out like in the next year, probably uh, that'll be, a, that'll be another fun project.
0: Yeah. It sounds like a lot of fun. So where's the best place for uh, fans uh, of your work, people that have heard the story today and maybe haven't heard of you before to connect and to find
1: you and find your work? I would say start at my website. That's uh, robbully.com. Um That's got all my links on social media. It's got links to all my books, uh, a little bit more information about me. Excellent. That's
0: y.com, right? Yes, indeed. Awesome. And are you uh, pretty active on Twitter or Facebook or any of the social media out there?
1: Absolutely, yeah. I'm on Twitter at, at Rob Foley, and I've got a, a Facebook author page as well. So, and I'm, yeah, I'm all, I'm on there all the time. Excellent, excellent.
0: Well, I do thank you so much for taking the time to talk. It was a, a great story to read, and um, you know, I'm sure everybody had fun listening to it. And I hope that everybody will check out your website, find you on Twitter and Facebook, and find out some more information about the stuff you have coming up.
1: Awesome. Thanks so much, Dan. I really appreciate you uh, you having me on and, and featuring my story.
0: Not a problem. All works read in this audio recording and associated music and artwork are copyright of their respective creators and may not be used in any form without their permission. Dramatic reading performed by Daniel Foytek. That's me. The voice of the librarian was performed by Nelson W. Piles. The voice of Society 13 was performed by Amber Collins. The Wicked Library theme was written by Anthony Rousick and performed by Novus. All the music in this episode was performed by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com and Disparition and used with their permission. You can check the show notes for titles and credits. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. Producer Daniel Foytech, executive producer and creator Nelson W. Piles. Full show notes with links and artwork can be found at www.thewickedlibrary.com forward slash 620. Until next time, this has been Daniel Foytek. Go ahead, leave the lights on. It makes it easier for the guy driving the other
1: car to see you're headed right for him. Societies rise. And societies fall.
0: When the time comes,
1: one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library... Kettle Whistle Radio Night Story Podcast Prog Watch Red Horse Radio The Lift History Goes Wrong. Listen The M Writing Podcast Society 13 Rebuilding Society One Podcast at a Time